Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is my co-host Aaron Miller. We have four topics we're going to talk about for you today. First off, we're going to talk about Samsung's developer conference, which they held this week and which I attended in person. Some interesting news coming out of that. Uh, more strategic than most of their events, which tend to be very sort of hardware and product focused. This is more sort of big picture stuff, so it was interesting. Uh, secondly, we're going to talk about the reviews for the Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL specifically some of the display issues that have been talked about in those reviews and some of the discussion about that this week. We also want to use that a little bit as a jumping off point for talking about what feels like it's been a month of fairly polarized reviews for products where we've had uh, very different responses from different reviewers and sort of talk about that a little bit. Thirdly, we'll talk briefly about Netflix earnings, which came out earlier this week. And then lastly, we'll talk again briefly about uh, the latest iPhones, the iPhone 8 and iPhone 10. Uh, both iPhone 8 uh, demand and signals we're seeing about that, and then also iPhone 10 and ongoing rumors about supply constraints and so on. So that's going to be the agenda for today, kicking off with Samsung's developer conference. Uh, as I mentioned, I was there in person, had a chance to uh, attend the keynote and some of the other sessions, as well as talk to some executives and so on. And I actually wrote up a piece for Tech Pinions this week, which uh, we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, that was my weekly public column there, in which I kind of talked about some of the key announcements and really. The key theme was about connected experiences, and this was sort of a slogan that was all over the place at the conference. And the point is that Samsung as a company is really, even Samsung Electronics as a company, is really several separate companies. As, a, as a, the mobile company, uh, there is the sort of um, components business, the sort of semiconductors and memory and so on. There's a visual display business that makes TVs, among other things, and so on. And they, they operate very separately. And then you've got sort of subsidiaries, uh, that are owned but run almost as separate companies like Smart Things and now more recently Harman Kardon. And the challenge with Samsung is always trying to bring all of that together and act like a single company. And so there's a sl- one Samsung slogan that I heard repeated several times by executives at the event. And uh, with what they announced publicly, uh, there were sort of two big announcements that kind of get at that whole idea of one Samsung. And one is a sort of a back-end thing and one is a front-end thing. From a back-end thing, they're consolidating three of their cloud platforms that they've had into a single cloud platform. So SmartThings had its own cloud platform. There was a Samsung Connect cloud platform that was tied to their sort of smart home stuff under the Samsung brand, which really just debuted earlier this year with the, the Galaxy S8 phones. Uh, and then there was also the Arctic uh, cloud platform. And this is their sort of IoT chipsets and stuff that they produce. Each of those had their own cloud platforms and they're sort of merging all of that together, creating a single back end, which will power things like Bixby, their, their voice assistant and that kind of thing as well now going forward. So there's consolidation there and that should mostly be invisible to end users. Uh, but the visible side of this for end users is Bixby. Uh, and so this is kind of a fascinating attempt to provide some uh, coherence, some coordination, some integration between their different device experiences uh, through Bixby, which is a voice assistant slash interface exists solely on phones today, but they announced it's going to be coming to their TVs, going to be coming to their, their family hub refrigerators and stuff like that for the kitchen. Um, and it's going to be opened up to third parties as well in various ways. Uh, they're going to have a little dongle and or module that companies will be able to embed in their various devices or plug into existing devices to provide Bixby there. And the idea is that then Bixby moves from being device-based to being cloud-based, gets to know you as an individual, can recognize your voice and so on and then does the things you say, allowing you to uh, control multiple devices from one device. And so it finally provides that sort of connective tissue in a, in a more visible way between these various devices that have been a very disjointed experience with different app stores and app experiences and everything else. 
Um, and so it's a really interesting sort of set of announcements in that sense. And certainly the vision there uh, feels like a, a good one and a good step forward for Samsung. But um, And I want to talk about this a little bit. That's the theory and the practice and the actual application of that is going to be very interesting to watch. But Aaron, kind of, I don't know to what extent you followed these announcements this week, but did you have any thoughts from kind of what you saw? No, I actually want to jump off from where you left off because it feels like Samsung has been working for years to try to establish an ecosystem around their products rather than just having a bunch of you know products that sort of do their own thing and maybe have overlap and, and connections, but not really have an ecosystem effect like you have within the Apple ecosystem. I mean, if you you know if you buy an iPhone and then you also have an iPad, and then you also have an Apple Watch, and so on. There are these aggregating effects that, that result, aggregating benefits that result from Apple being really deliberate about creating an ecosystem for all their products. And Samsung has worked on this for years, but never really kind of gotten over the hump that I consider it a true ecosystem. This kind of stuff gets it a lot closer to that. I, I think they still have the big challenge of the fact that they rely so heavily on Android, which is its own ecosystem. Um, Right. But uh, where, where there are competing versions of everything um, within the with not everything, but most things within the Android ecosystem, I, I mean, they still have the fundamental problem of, you know, a whole bunch of Samsung Galaxy owners preferring uh, Google Assistant to Bixby, and that's that's a hard thing when you're trying to come up with an ecosystem having all these strong ingredients competing from outside of your ecosystem that your customers like and are using instead. But, but the idea of trying to build an ecosystem for Samsung makes a lot of sense. Um, they just have never quite gotten it over. They've never gotten it over the hump where I would actually say, yeah, that's like a that's a true ecosystem. Instead, it seems like it's been to this point and still is now, even after the announcements this week, still like loosely connected products. Right. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Just, that's just sort of the general observation from this week. No, absolutely. And I, I think it's fascinating to think about, right? So... In ecosystems, what provides the connective tissue? Uh, and for Apple, it's about device plus operating system and services all tightly integrated. Like those three things kind of all going across everything. So everything's ultimately based on OS X, uh, albeit right. loosely. You know, iOS and sort of flavors of iOS drive a lot of the newer devices and so on. Uh, but then they have, you know, the services that go across that, the apps that are now syncing through iCloud and so on across all of that. So that's kind of how they do it. At the opposite end of the scale, you've got Google that does it essentially at an app level, uh, whether that's a web right. app or, or a native app. You know, they, the Gmail and uh, Google Calendar and so on, they, they, you know, you sign into them and then they provide that integration at that sort of login level, if you like, across a variety of different platforms and devices. Microsoft used to be Windows, uh, and in the last couple of years we've seen them kind of do this big mental shift from Windows everywhere to Microsoft apps everywhere and kind of taking that approach, especially on mobile, but then still trying to tie it back into Windows on the desktop and having that integration be at the OS level. And Samsung is in a strange position because, as you pointed out, on mobile, they are reliant on Android. And so they don't control that operating system itself. So they have to operate at a layer above that. Uh, in TVs and smartwatches and some other categories, they do control the operating system. Um, but that means the OS can't be the basis for the coherence. And yet they don't have a strong services layer. They don't have a set of apps that are consistent across all this stuff or anything. And so in casting around for a way to integrate everything, they seem to have settled on Bixby as the way to do it. Um, and I think that's fascinating. We haven't really seen a company, maybe Amazon is the closest to that with Alexa. Yeah. 
um, to using sort of a voice interface as, a, as an operating system almost. But of course, even Amazon has a fully fledged Fire based, uh, Fire OS based operating system on some of its other devices. So even that's not exactly comparable. So we're seeing Amazon try something, rather, sorry, Samsung trying something new here, which hasn't really been done before. And there are some big challenges, right? So Bixby's only on, you know, the S8 phones and the Note 8 so far from a phone perspective. It's not on any TVs, not on any fridges. And because those devices weren't built with a voice assistant in mind, you can't go back and install that through software on existing devices. So only next year when they actually start selling TVs and refrigerators with the stuff built in, does Bixby even show up in those categories. So if you think about replacement cycles for those devices, they're super long. So there's right. a great theory here is my point, but the execution is going to take years and years. And Bixby really doesn't feel ready for any of this stuff yet. It's pretty flawed even just on a smartphone, which is what it was designed for. Imagine now taking it to this other stuff. And they've got version two coming out and it's supposed to be better and they're baking more stuff from their Viv acquisition into all of this. But it does feel like they've got a long way to go and there's a lot of hurdles for them to overcome. And they're still, despite the one Samsung messaging, still acting like lots of separate companies. I heard lots of executives talking about, we're partnering with, and it turned out to be another part of Samsung. It's like partnering with another part of the same company. You know, the mentality <laughs> yeah. is still very much that of separate companies. Uh, and so that sort of cultural shift is going to take a long time to happen as well. And that's another sort of big internal barrier to all of this. Yeah, I think this is right. And, and there are other challenges to this whole strategy. I mean, it's not just they're replacing televisions and refrigerators. That there's a long replacement cycle for that. These are also really expensive devices. I mean, you know, like TVs are expensive and, and, uh, and refrigerators are way more expensive. And you got to be really sold <laughs> on this ecosystem idea to have that be the distinguishing factor in which refrigerator you buy. Right. I mean, because the reality is the vast majority of people are going to pick it on some physical feature, like how the ice machine works or whether it has four doors or French door or stainless or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like for Bixby to be the reason that they choose a Samsung fridge over like an LG refrigerator, that's that's super ambitious for Bixby. And, and, the, right. and the truth is, like, I, you know, I watched the Bixby ad that they rolled out this week on the on YouTube or whatever, sort of trying to say, hey, there, this is a whole new way to interact with your devices. <clears throat> there was nothing really new in it. Right. I mean, it was all the same old, like, schedule this, remind mm -hmm. me when I get here that this is that I'm supposed to do this. Right. You know, it's all the same stuff that personal assistants have been doing now for a while. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and and the original vision of Bixby, the idea that it could reach deeply into all your Android apps on your Samsung phone, hasn't fully materialized either. Right. And so it feels sadly like an also ran. And mm -hmm. and that's obviously not entirely true because they're kind of trying to, like you said, build all this connective tissue on the back end. But that's not that. But but if if all that connective tissue adds up to is the same set of tasks that Google Assistant or Alexa or Siri can do for you, or Cortana, I guess I shouldn't leave that out. Mm -hmm. um, then there's not a, there's there's not a competitive advantage that makes me want to jump into a commitment on which refrigerator I buy five years from now. Right. Yeah. No. Far more likely you pick Samsung for some other reason than Bixby happens to come with it. Yeah. So right. as you say, that makes it even tougher. So. All right, well, let's move on from that topic to our second topic, which is the reviews for Google's Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL phones. Uh, the reviews came out this week, and uh, they were a mixed bag. And it's felt like the past month has been a month of polarized reviews of products. I think starting with the Apple Watch Series 3 uh, with LTE, where some reviewers generally endorsed it, said it was pretty great, and, and they didn't really see any issues with it. And, and a couple of reviewers 
had major issues with the cellular component of it for reasons that have now become clear and been fixed, actually, uh, but reviewed it very differently. But we saw that happen again uh, with the Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL reviews. I saw it happen today with the Harman Kardon speaker reviews um, based on Cortana. Um, it happened to some extent with the LG uh, V30 reviews that also came out recently. Um, and with the Pixel 2 phones, a big hang-up for most people seems to be the display. Uh, to the extent people have an issue with these phones, it seems to be the display, especially on the XL. And this is an OLED display based on LG display technology. Uh, and interestingly, that LG V30 that I mentioned, that was the, also the point of uh, complaint for those people that really hated it, was that the display was really poor quality. And this kind of raises some interesting issues at a time when OLED, um, which you know has been popular on Samsung phones for quite some time, been popular on LG phones for a while. You know, Apple obviously embracing it with the iPhone 10, which we'll talk about later on. Um, but you know, Google now embracing it here as well with the Pixel 2 XL. Uh, there are some real issues, especially it seems with some of LG's displays. So Aaron, kind of what was your take on that news this week? Um, yeah, I agree with you with uh, the sort of mixed bag of reviews that they that they have been really polarized. And I'm just, you know, I wonder if part of this is just due to the really tight uh, review schedule that is mm-hmm. that, it, that that is given for all this kind of stuff to get evaluated. You know, I mean, if, if Apple, for example, had gotten the, 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 um, the Series 3 out sooner and had been able to get more feedback um, and had actually solve this problem before before the embargo was lifted and reviews could go out um you know we wouldn't be talking about it at all because it turned out it was an easy fix Uh, now you can't say the same for the pixel 2 screens i mean that's that's obviously a lot more fundamental problem um so i don't know i mean maybe maybe it's just like a a coincidental confluence of you know all these issues that it's turned out that way Uh, with some of them i'm surprised that there weren't more that there wasn't more um, sort of uniform criticism, especially in the case of the Pixel 2 XL display right. in particular. Um, but the vibe I've gotten or the impression I've gotten from these LG OLED displays is that they is that it's a it's a it's a manufacturing consistency issue. And it might truly be the case that some of these reviewers got OLEDs that are doing fine and then others that got displays that are you know, that are manifesting these issues more prominently. Right. <clears throat> Boy, there's so much power right now for Samsung and as far as OLED display technology goes because they seem to be the only ones that can do it at the at sort of the standard that everybody is demanding um, in a way that's really consistent. They are in yeah. a great place right now as far as OLED technology is concerned. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's an interesting piece, and we'll link to this in the show notes, from a guy called Daniel Matt, or Matter. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. It's M-A-T-T-E. Uh, he wrote on the Hacker Noon uh, publication on Medium this week about, uh, the title is Debunking Misinformation About the Pixel 2 XL's Display. And there's some good details in there about what exactly uh, is going on here and what you know how to think about OLED and, and so on and so forth. So really good... Um, detail there if by way of background and, and I won't try to kind of recapture all of it here but the point is OLED is still relatively new technology uh, Samsung also had issues in its first few phones with OLED screens where you looked at them straight on they looked great you looked at them from the side they had this sort of bluish cast to them and they they've resolved that and obviously have you know the best displays in the industry which is why you know Apple among others are buying displays from them but it's also why there are real supply issues with 
um, OLED displays in general because Samsung dominates that. They're really the only ones that can make them reliably at this point. And yet we need far more of those displays in the market than Samsung itself can provide. So LG becomes another supplier, uh, obviously making them for its own phones, but also for companies like Google. And then you have these issues which showed up on both of these phones. And it, it's a quality issue. It's Some of the displays are fine, others are not. They're patchy, they look funny, they have a greenish cast to them. You know, some really serious issues. And um, you know, that's fine if it's in some sort of marginal low cost phone. Or well, it's not really fine even there, but it might be overlooked there. Um, but in a sort of a premium flagship phone, and I think you were making this point before we started recording, uh, you just can't afford to have something like that. And I think that's why, you know, even though some of the issues are subtle, they're sort of about, you know, cast and the screen. And every, every device maker makes their own choices about sort of how to balance the, the display and, and the color scheme and everything else for the display and, and, and make sure it's, you know, what they want it to be. And they make different decisions about those. But, you know, in some cases, it was as simple as the cast seemed a bit funny. And in others, it was just really blotchy and terrible. But that kind of inconsistency just is unacceptable in a really sort of premium high end. And in this case, you know, the Google uh, Pixel 2 XL is a really expensive, super premium type smartphone. Yeah. And, and this is in part Google kind of still paying the price for their strategy with what started out as Nexus phones and then turned into Pixel phones. And it's why they are are committing so much more now, um, like essentially acquiring all these all these all these engineers, right, to design the next generation of pixels. Mm. They they've been paying the price of leaving the hardware quality up to third parties, and right. it sets them up for this exact kind of situation. I, I don't think it, I expect this to sort of go away in the future, and and next year's Pixel phone will be a lot further along, and there probably won't be this any glaring issues, but. But like you're saying, in the smartphone space, you cannot have a glaring failure. There's there mm-hmm. are table stakes across a key set of features, and the display is one of them. Yeah. And if you're below that, it doesn't matter how far ahead you are in something else. And all the reviews seem very positive about the camera, for example, and right. and that this really is probably the best smartphone camera out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got some qualms with the portrait mode stuff that I've seen uh, put right. online. It, the Verge, in particular, showed mm-hmm. a picture where like the left side of the background was blurred a lot more than the right side, which felt or weird. Even at similar even distances, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But um, but 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 even in spite of that, people are raving about the camera. It doesn't matter how good the camera is if if uh, you're way below the standard on some other critical yeah. feature like the display. Which you spend looking at the entire time looking at, right? When you're actually exactly. using the phone. So. And even the great pictures you take are affected by that, right? right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, no, particularly relevant there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think this is going to be a thing next year when the mm-hmm. pixels come out. I don't think there will be a, you know, a glaring issue. And in fact, the truth is this is probably going to improve even just over the life cycle of the Pixel 2. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the phones that are shipping, the Pixel 2 XL phones that are shipping six months from now probably won't have this problem. Right. Um, but they do now, and it's at launch time, and it's mm-hmm. when most people that are upgrading are making these decisions. And, uh, and yeah, Google's kind of paying a price for it. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I want to go back to sort of the point you made about reviews and, and the sort of shortness of time for reviews. It's definitely an issue, and I've, you know, I haven't done a ton of reviews. I only occasionally get devices before they actually become available to the general public. And so I've only done a handful of these. But I've noticed, you know, you're under a real time crunch. You have so much stuff you want to test during that time. 
and you just may not do all the things that you typically do, you know, in the course of several weeks of usage with a device in that sort of five days or three days or whatever it might be that you actually have it for. And so you do focus on the things that you notice the most rather than necessarily all the stuff that's fine and you just don't really notice. But I think a couple of other issues, and this is one I've noticed with reviews for a long time, everybody wants to find something new and original to say. And yeah. it's and everybody wants to provide a sense of balance too. So they want to have positive and negative things to say. And so that really reinforces if there is something negative and if, specifically if it feels like something is different about this phone, that gets heightened and exaggerated to some extent in the reviews. And I think that's part of why we're seeing some of this polarization. But I think another issue that we see is these devices are so sophisticated and complicated and have so many different aspects to them now that people that are sort of general purpose reviewers are often poorly qualified to really judge some of this stuff. And so, um, you know, to use another example, the Harman Kardon, I think it's called the Invoke, the Cortana-based speaker that came out or is coming out next week and which reviews came out for today. Uh, some of the reviews said the sound quality is great and this is, you know, it's better than the Echo and all the rest of it. And then PC Mag had a review um, yeah, where Sasha Segan is, he's the mobile reviewer, but he clearly drew on expertise from people that review speakers at PC Mag because they had done some actual testing um, that you know clearly knew what it was talking about when it came to audio, and they said you know this is bad, that's bad. We tested it with this track and that track that we used to test these different things, and I mean details in there that went over my head, frankly, but clearly we're coming from a place of expertise on speakers, and, and one of the things in this um, Pixel Two XL. Uh, debunking piece that I mentioned earlier uh, is, you know, he basically says you can't visually check a display. You have to put it through tests with professional machines to really gauge the quality of a display. And of course, no mobile phone reviewer has that stuff. Um, it's not something yeah. they've traditionally had to do. And so you get these fairly ill-informed judgments about what's good and what's not. And then, you know, you get these DxO mark scores about, you know, camera scores out of 100 or whatever. And the iPhone you know, eight had the best score for about five days until the Pixel 2 was scored and then that had the best score. And, you know, it's subjective. It's incredibly subjective. And so you get this mix of subjective stuff and then stuff that's being judged by people who aren't qualified and don't have the technology to judge it and so on. And so I think you get a lot of these issues where it's largely opinion. And I think it's a good reminder that reviews are essentially opinion. And, you know, they often seek to reach one big conclusion and give it a score out of 10 or 100 or whatever. Whereas, in fact, what they need to be doing is evaluating, okay, for this kind of a person, is it a good fit? For somebody who's coming from this device, would it be a good idea? You know, be a bit more sophisticated. But almost none of the reviews that are actually out there ever do that stuff. Yeah. All right, well, rant over. Um, let's move on to uh, <laughs> topic number three, uh, which is Netflix earnings. And we'll just talk about this briefly. But they came out earlier this week. And uh, largely good set of earnings, actually. And coming right on the heels of announcements about price increases, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, but they, they beat their own subscriber growth targets, which they've done quite a bit over the last several years. And they always make the point that, you know, the, the guidance they give is their own internal forecast at the time they give it. So, you know, they appear to have been genuinely surprised on the upside um, by those numbers. They have missed a couple of times on the low end over the last couple of years as well. So it's not like they do this every quarter and they're just sandbagging. I think they genuinely don't know what the numbers are going to look like. And I think that's partly that they operate in just so many countries outside the US. There are so many moving pieces here that it's extraordinarily difficult to predict. And then you have new shows debuting and, and they always see more new subscriber ads when they have new shows debuting and stuff. So that's unpredictable too, exactly how much impact that's going to have. But broadly, a good set of earnings. Um, was there anything that stuck out to you, Aaron? Uh, it was the, well, so it was a combination of two things. It was 
the increase in original content spending that's coming, which is one to two billion dollars extra, and that's a lot. I mean, that's a that's at least a twenty percent increase uh, year over year. But then the other thing is that so so Reed Hastings basically said that the future of Netflix is in original content, mm-hmm. um, which kind of felt like a white flag as far as being able to reliably license content from others to display on Netflix. I mean, the loss of the Disney deal um, and all the Disney content was, is a huge thing. And uh, and I don't know that it was the reason most people signed up for Netflix, but when you did sign up and then the latest Marvel movie was showing up, you know, uh, in your in, in sort of like the net popular movies part of, you know, Netflix, um, that made you really feel like it was worth it. Um, obviously, they, they think their future is something a lot closer to what HBO has been able to do. Um, and I, I, I'm not going to say that that's unlikely. I think they're actually doing really well that way. But it really changes the dynamic of, of the way we think about Netflix and, uh, and also just the way we think about digital streaming in the future. I mean, it may be the case that all these aggregators kind of go away, right? And Amazon Prime and Netflix and all the others like everybody is basically pushing their own stuff out through their own subscription service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that doesn't happen because it feels really uh, customer hostile. Right. And and uh, but but it but there is a trend right now shifting away from aggregation and more sure. like everybody doing their own original thing. And and I don't love where that's headed. Mm-hmm. I see why it makes sense for Netflix in its particular circumstance. But then the aggregate effect is that all of us are stuck paying, you know, whatever, 5 to $15 per streaming service right. to aggregate it all on our own. And that sounds terrible. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's tricky. I mean, Hulu is kind of one of those other channels and it's obviously doing its own original content, but it, it does feel like a lot of the more traditional TV players are taking stuff out of Netflix and putting it into Hulu in some cases, kind of boosting that because they have ownership stakes in it. And it feels like something that's driving stuff to their own brands rather than a separate brand to some extent. Um, but yeah, I, I, Netflix's investment in original content looks smarter all the time because it's been a great hedge against this stuff and allows them to control things a lot more, allows them to license in all the countries where they want to be and all the rest of it. Um, it's still, you know, a minority of their overall content. And, you know, they made a reference to book value on the earnings call, which made me dig into that a little bit this week. And they have two and a half billion dollars worth of content. That's kind of their internal valuation of their original content asset that they have on their books right now. So that's two and a half billion dollars in that. That's up uh, fivefold or more than fivefold in the last two years. Uh, so it was wow. under a half a billion two years ago. So it's, that's multiplied enormously. But the overall content asset that sits on their books is fifteen billion dollars. So you know, twelve and a half billion dollars of that is licensed content. So it's only one in six dollars right now in their overall content assets it's the original content but as i say that's grown fivefold at a time when the rest of it's grown i think twofold so um clearly that's growing much faster than the rest and uh, that has huge cash costs and so on and so their, their free cash flow is negative in a big way at the moment even though they're profitable as a company because they have to finance that stuff up front which we've talked about a little bit before um, yeah. But that continues to be the biggest sort of worry about Netflix is that, you know, if ever their growth starts to slow down, if, for example, Disney's content going away or other content going away over the next couple of years, 
uh, does make it less attractive and their growth slows down. They don't have the buffer to continue to fund that massive content investment. So it's a theoretical risk at this point, and we have to see kind of how well they do with the original content and if they can make it compelling and grow that uh, in a way that is sustainable. But uh, that's, I guess, the theoretical worry, at least at some point. Yeah. One of the problems or challenges with original content is that um, a lot of it may not matter to your subscribers. I mean, I either I, I don't know what percentage of Netflix original content I've watched, but it has to be less than 5%. Yeah. Because they make so much of it. And a lot yeah. of it's stuff I don't care about, kids' shows mm-hmm. or whatever. But but it's hard to be everything for everybody when you're the mm-hmm. one making the shows. There's yeah. no there's no media source. That, there's no studio. There's nobody who does that. Mm-hmm. And if that's the way Netflix, even HBO, they what they what HBO really has is a core set, very small group, of amazing mm-hmm. original content properties, and then they have a bunch of you know, uh, uh, relatively new releases, and yeah. and that 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 recipe works for them. Not even HBO is trying to be everything for everybody, and it feels like Netflix is head of that direction. Um, in the way that they're making original content choices, Amazon Prime is kind of heading that direction too. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how sustainable that is. I guess we'll have to see. But I'm not. Uh, yeah, it just feels like that's a hard. That's a really. That's a really heavy burden to carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, let's just talk briefly at the end about iPhones and iPhone 8 and iPhone 10. And these stories have been swirling around for several weeks, and we've never really dived into it. So I thought ahead of earnings season might be worth diving into just briefly here. I think the two main storylines is that iPhone 8 sales seem to be a bit soft. And um, there's two parts to that. There's the first 10 days or so that happened in the September quarter, and then there's whatever happens during the course of the December quarter. And um, my guess is that iPhone 8 sales were strong enough that basically all the supply was mopped up by demand, as it always is. And Apple probably managed to make more of these than they did of the iPhone 7s last year. And so they probably had perfectly healthy sales in September quarter. They'll, Apple will hit their guidance and all the rest of it. The big question, to my mind, is what happens in the December quarter when you have potentially continued iPhone 8 week sales, which several signals suggest we are seeing. Uh, some sources suggesting that actually iPhone 7 is outselling the iPhone 8, which would be crazy, but um, you know some evidence of that at least. And a lot of that seems to be people waiting on the iPhone 10, or at least waiting on the iPhone 10 reviews and a chance to see it in stores and make their own decision about whether it's worth it to them to spend the extra, potentially wait the extra time to get that. Um, but at the same time, the second storyline is iPhone 10 supply constraints or issues in manufacturing causing supply constraints such that there may be a very small number of iPhone 10 units on sale when they actually go on sale. Uh, and that in turn, of course, would mean if people really are determined to wait for those and that pushes uh, the sales of those devices much later in either this quarter or even into next quarter, which would dampen overall iPhone sales in a big way, especially if the iPhone 8 is also not selling well. So really big questions there some of which hopefully will be resolved when Apple issues its guidance for the December quarter on its earnings call in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but lots of sort of rumor-mongering and stuff going on in the meantime. Yeah, there are two sets of iPhone rumors every year that you can practically set your watch to. And the first one is that before launch, or before announcement even, um, Apple has supply constraints because some particular part is really hard to manufacture. And that always kind of leads up to launch and then... Shortly before launch, there's another countervailing rumor that comes out that says, hey, they've caught up, they figured it out, no problem. That may all be happening in the background, but it feels like it happens every year, according to the rumor mill. And then the other rumor you can always set your watch to is post-launch, Apple is supposedly cutting orders to its manufacturers. 
and saying, hey, we wanted you to make 100 million of these, and now we only want you to make 70 million of these or whatever it is. And that uh, these are so consistent every year. This is the first year that I think, yeah, there might be something to both of those, <laughs> in part because the iPhone X is legitimately so much harder to make. Um, because it has a whole new host of components that have never been in an iPhone before, where previously it was just an upgraded version of something. Um, And then in terms of cutting orders, the rumors about the iPhone 8 orders being cut, I guess I'm less less sure that the orders have actually been cut. I don't think think Apple expected this huge burst of iPhone 8 sales. But there is reason to suspect that they've been soft. And it's because of this iPhone X being thrown into the mix, launching a month later, and uh, and you know apparently reasonably being supply constrained. Mm-hmm. So this is the first year where, in years past, I would have said, yeah, these rumors always. This is the this is how it goes. They always pan out this way, and everything ends up being fine. And Apple sets records and so forth. This is the first year where I've sort of said, oh, there might be something to these. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so, no, absolutely. And I guess yeah. we'll have to see. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I think on October 27th at midnight um, Pacific time, mm-hmm. uh, I think you're going to have five. If you want an iPhone 10, you're going to have about five minutes to get one within the first shipping window. Right. Um, if that. If yeah. that. Right. And by the way, for anybody who's getting one, use the Apple Store app on the iPhone because mm-hmm. that's the most reliable way to, to make yeah. that order. Yeah. Angela Aarons is even telling everybody that. Um, but, uh, but we don't know what's going to happen in the weeks and months to follow. It may be, this is, I mean, especially when you look at the way things shook out for AirPods, you know, or, um, the Apple pencil a couple of years ago. I mean, strangely, these are things that Apple took a long time to catch up its supply chain to demand. Mm -hmm. Uh, the iPhone 10, if it has the same problems would be mega huge earth shattering financially, if they had the same slowness to to in terms of yeah. production, so. yeah, and in some ways the best thing that can happen is people go, okay, the iPhone ten looks pretty good, but I think the iPhone eight will be fine for my needs. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, and everybody can come falls on back and buys iPhone eights <laughs> and iPhone eight pluses instead. You know, that in some right. ways that would be the best thing for for Apple, given what's likely to be some level of supply constraint, and we we just don't know how supply constrained these devices will be, and maybe by the end of the That's quarter right. they'll be making tens of millions, but. You know, the likelihood is they're going to be pretty short, and so um, that's uh, yeah. There's lots of ways it can go wrong for Apple. I think it's the long and the short of it, and it'll be very interesting to see what their guidance looks like when they uh, report earnings and provide their guidance for uh, the December quarter, which I think is in. Um, it's unusually late, actually. It's in early November this time around that they're. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's it's on the second. Yeah, the 2nd of November. So waiting a little longer than usual this time around. All right, well, let's wrap things up there. Um, thanks very much for listening, everybody. We have, we will have uh, links in the show notes to some of the stuff that we've talked about, some of the specific things we've mentioned, uh, so that you can go check those out if you're interested. Um, as you may have heard uh, earlier this week, I decided to shutter Tech Narratives and along with it the Tech Narratives podcast that I'd also be running, been running um, for the last few months. And so, um, I was sorry to do that. It's something I've enjoyed doing, found very interesting, but just 
didn't make sense to continue to spend the, the time and energy on that that I was given the, the level of subscribership and so on. But um, we will certainly keep the Beyond Devices podcast going. I'm hopeful that I'll be able to write more for the Beyond Devices blog going forward as well with uh, tech narrative stuff out of the way. Uh, as well as doing all my usual stuff. So I'm going to link in the show notes to a piece that I wrote this week as well uh, about all those changes. So thanks again for listening and have a great weekend. We'll be back with you again next week. Bye-bye.